0: I've been thinking about this topic for today. And um, I have some notes about it because there was a lot I wanted to say. Um, So, you know, for everybody who's listening, happy Halloween. Even if it's no longer Halloween when you listen, you can think of your Halloween self. And uh, and I want to tell you today, the topic today is... How can we apply some of what I've been saying about what a dead end is in life and how to work your way through a dead end in some systematic way? How can we apply that lens to the situation where you are the spouse or partner of somebody with a significant mental illness? That of course could be any number of mental illnesses and each one would be different and each situation is different. So there's no way I can reach out and talk about each one unless I talk to a particular person. So I want to, but I want to talk you through this. It's a topic that means a lot to me, having known a lot of people and the suffering and the struggles that people have been through. So I I want to see if I can say something helpful. So let me tell you first about Bill and Claire. These names are not the names of the real people. And uh, even some of the details are composites of different people I've known. But it goes back about 20, 20 years, 20-ish years. And Bill, you know, Bill and Claire were both about 35 years old. They were married. They had been married for three years. Um, they had a, they had a uh, two-year-old child. Um, Bill worked uh, in a, uh, a, a nonprofit organization uh at a managerial level and uh claire worked as a fitness instructor and um you know they enjoyed things together like bike riding uh walking in nature uh they loved their daughter they loved their their two-year-old daughter um and they both liked reading they liked a quiet life together they had some relatives nearby they had reasonable relationships with their relatives They had a few friends, and uh, basically life was going all right until um, about that time when they were about 35, when Claire, uh, step by step, symptom by symptom, came down with a severe major depressive disorder. Um, It started out with she just wasn't having much energy. She was not sleeping very well. She didn't feel good and they figured she probably has a virus, the flu or something like that. Um, As it progressed, uh, she not only had very low energy, but she could get no pleasure from anything. She did not get pleasure from being with her daughter or with her husband. Her concentration was poor. She didn't feel like going out. She didn't wanna see relatives. She didn't wanna see friends. She really didn't wanna go to work though it came to the time where Bill started taking her to work, so she would go, and then sit there some of the time, uh, so that if she couldn't make it, she could come back to the car, and go back. Um, they, you know, sex had stopped, intimacy had stopped, conversations were minimal, kind of just functional. She felt very guilty, felt like she was making an impossible life for Bill. Bill was trying to manage his disappointment his uh, heartache his frustration his empathic pain about what she was going through um, she saw her doctor she saw a psychiatrist she was put on medications she didn't like some of the side effects but she stuck with it she wasn't getting any rapid change um, and she didn't have much hope for that it was going to work she just felt like well, this is going on for many weeks and now into into months so what happened to bill Um, I knew a lot about that um, at the time. So what happened to Bill, this went on for quite some time. Um, From his point of view, he lost his best friend uh, into depression. He lost his kind of like his partner in crime, his combat buddy, whatever you want to call it. They They had a good relationship and his life was centered around her. So he had sort of lost the spirit of the centerpiece of his life. He lost her affection. He lost her, um, uh, her energy, her responsiveness, her ideas, her sharing of all responsibilities. Uh, he lost the way she played with her daughter. Um, he lost the fact that she used to just be a very present person uh, more than he was. And now she just wasn't. She was like a shadow of her former self. Um, She didn't want Bill to tell anyone this was going on. Uh, She felt like it was too embarrassing. And she felt like this was a measure of her weakness, that she was going through this, that she should just be powering through this. And she had never had really a significant depression before. Uh, Sometimes she wanted to die. And her daughter would look at her sometimes and grab at her and bring things to her and say things to her as if she was trying to wake mommy up, even though mommy was sitting right there, sort of looking at her, but not very responsive and looking depressed. So the daughter seemed like she looked, she seemed puzzled and, and, and a little um, um, off and wondered, uh, you could tell in the way she interacted, where did my mommy go? So Bill was feeling abandoned, he was feeling unloved, he was feeling unresponded to, he knew it had to do with the depression, though the longer it went on, it was sort of harder to hold out like that. He was profoundly disappointed and he grew more worried about her by the week. At first he just thought, of course, this will turn around and go away. And it just kept not going away. And he hated that Claire seemed to blame herself for all of this when he was doing his best to understand that this was a depression that happens to people, even though neither of them had had much experience with that. In fact, it was true that that Bill was having to seriously overcompensate in his situation. It wasn't just his loss of his buddy, his loss of his lover, his loss of his partner. He was also having to pick up the slack and do so much. I mean, he took over childcare Uh, most of the way. Um, Not always with a lot of skill. Uh, He took over uh, household responsibilities uh, and finances, which Claire had managed before. uh, Not always very well. Um, The daughter was more becoming more sort of cryy, trouble with sleeping, waking up, calling out for parents, um, and generally just seemed not easy to comfort and didn't want to, she had gone to a daycare and she started to not want to go to her daycare so much. So Bill also became the primary ambassador uh, of the family, you might say, whereas Claire had done more of that social outward reach than, than he had in the past. But now he's the one, because people are calling, wondering, hey, what's going on? Hey, you want to get together? Uh, why don't we drop by? And he's trying to manage this by being the one who speaks to people and try to skillfully ward people off and not get them too worried because, because Claire didn't want anybody to know anything. Um, Very, very tough situation for him. Um, And like I say, she could barely go to work some of the time and he would then say, come on. And he would be her cheerleader in the morning. Come on you can do it. I know you can do this. Like, come on, let's just go to work. I'll drive you there. I'll hang out there with you. Why don't I get a cup of coffee with you? You know, he was being, trying to be just doing what he could to be very kind to her. Um, He would take her on long drives, hoping that just being out in the countryside and then maybe little walks, that she really didn't want to walk in the countryside anymore. But he would take her and the daughter on drives. He was the one who would make her meals. He would get her things. He would try to cheer her up. And, you know, in a way you might say, I hadn't thought of it till right now, but both he and the daughter were each using their own mechanisms to try to help this mom, this wife, come back to herself. Um, and sometimes she would, some of the hardest times when he's working his butt off and trying to keep up with everything, she would then criticize him because he's not doing stuff the way she thought he should, or not doing it the way she would. And then she would feel regretful that she had done that. But still, it it stung. Um, You know, uh, I remember him talking about that what he tried to do and he found it somewhat successful is go into what he called survival mode. No longer was he thinking, oh, we can have a full life right now. Hopefully it'll be back soon. But he would, he just felt like he had to kind of, Narrow his focus. I got to get this done, and I got to get this done, and I got to get this done, and I got to not to think think too much about this, and I got to not feel too much about this because I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to get depressed myself. I'm going to start crying, and it's not going to stop. And so, he was really uh, trying to hold his emotional life uh, together. At one point, she had shock treatments, ECT prescribed for her depression after two or three medicines didn't work, and so he was he didn't want her to have to go in a hospital so he sort of just went to great lengths to arrange things so that he could take her and he didn't want anyone else to know so he would take her to get outpatient ECT three times a week for several weeks and he would take her there and it would be traumatic for him as well as for her and then he would bring her home and try to help her recover so he was explaining to his boss that something was going on with his wife He needed time off and fortunately there was some flexibility there. He began to drink, he always had a glass of wine now and then, but he began to have a glass and more than a glass of wine every night. He just felt he needed the relief. Um, And then sometimes uh, he would drink harder stuff, which was not what he was especially accustomed to. Uh, He also found himself turning to porn. Uh, more and more, whereas it had been fine before, maybe now and then, but now it was like becoming the center of not only his sex life, but it was becoming something of an addiction, and he was starting to feel that it was taking up all of his spare time at night when he wasn't with his daughter and he wasn't with his wife, and he felt bad about that, and he got into extended ruminations about their relationship, where it was going, why did, how did this happen, what did his, how did he contribute to this depression, uh, how did her mother with whom she was conflicted, contribute to this depression. He got quite judgmental about the mother. He got quite judgmental about himself. He wished that they hadn't had a child. um, And he blamed himself because he knew he had had some thoughts that maybe they should wait longer. Um, He started to find himself being more irritated with his daughter uh, and less patient, and, and he felt bad about that. Uh, he tried to ignore what was going on and stay in his little survival mode. I mean, after all, he had come to conclude after a few months that he could not make her feel better. And you know, it was one of the hardest things for him. And I think it is for people in these situations. You so much want to make your spouse be better, whatever it is. We're talking about major depression now, but it'd be a little somewhat different with a bipolar illness, with a borderline illness, with PTSD, with whatever it is. It's kind of like, you have that image of that person that used to be a certain way that was, uh, and you still have it in your mind and you want to get somebody back there and you do what is within your repertoire to try to get somebody back there. And it's one of the hardest things is that when it doesn't work and it doesn't work today and it doesn't work tomorrow and it doesn't alleviate depression and it doesn't stop bipolar and it doesn't stop borderline and it doesn't, you know, that love and all these efforts actually just bounce off and, that's one of the things that causes burnout. It's one of the things that causes burnout in people in the medical profession is if they do the same thing over and over again and they try different things and their patients don't get better. Um, it's it's just a natural response to get burned out and then to feel like, how am I going to keep doing this? His sleep got worse. He started himself to feel tired and sick. And the experiences of a person um, of being with a partner, of being with someone with a mental illness, are just profoundly exhausting. Uh, They're frustrating. And in their situation, and in many situations, it's something you go through alone. Um, You might have someone else who knows, you might have a therapist, you might have a family member, you might have a friend that you talk to. Thank God if you do, because because it's not that unusual, that due to stigma, or due to shame, or due to just wanting to preserve the connections in your life, that you really are just holding holding the bag yourself, and so there is this sense that even though you're still with that partner with whom you used to have such wonderful times, you actually don't have companionship anymore, um, and you're you've become a caretaker. Um, so that so all these things, I realize, you know, I, I'm going over it this way because <laughs> I want it to be clear in talking about this that this is what happens, and some people don't know this, some people. I've never been in this. Some people have been in this but don't know anyone else who's been in this. Um, But actually, people all over the world are going through this as I speak. And I think it's the kind of thing that is often hidden in family lives. Yeah. So... I guess I would just close that part by saying in sum, uh, when you have a mentally ill spouse, whatever it is, it gradually penetrates into every area of your life and you have to preserve areas. And I wanna talk about what, you know, how to approach this from, from a strategic point of view because basically when you get in that situation, often strategic points of view go out the window you know, getting through the day, getting through the night, getting through the next episode, if there's, if it's an episodic illness is like, you know, takes, takes everything. Um, So, and every such situation is uh, different, but I do think some things are typical of some of the things that I'm saying. I think this is a situation where both partners, both members of a couple spiral toward a place of hopelessness. Uh, a place of just going on, a place of depression on both parts, of anxiety on both parts, of rumination, of shame on both parts, of guilt on both parts, um, uh, of uh, often despair, and the feeling that one that one is just uh, on, a, on a trip on a way to a dead end, and you just can't see what's going to happen with this because it doesn't seem like there's any reward for your efforts. Now, people around the world, I think, and I've certainly known a number because of being a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist and a family member and a friend uh, of a lot of people. Um, I, I know there's a ton of people go through these kind of things and they all turn to different things. And some of them are quite successful and, and, you know, more skillful than I can represent here. So I certainly don't claim to be, oh, here's the answer to this. But I guess through all of the work I've done with uh severe mental illness, and with borderline personality disorder, with depression, with bipolar illness, with schizophrenia, um, and with families, that uh, I just want to suggest a way of looking at this, and especially if you know DBT, uh, there's a lot within the package of DBT that, though it doesn't aim at this per se, can be turned in this direction. So I want to go through a step-by-step approach. Um, so first, the first thing to explain is something I explained in the last podcast, but I'm going to explain it sharply and very briefly here. It's sort of at the core of how I think about this is that, how do you think of the dead end? Because I kind of think, um, even though this is an oversimplification, it's helpful to me to think of the dead end as made up of two layers, two levels, two whatevers, but and a mixture of the two but I find it helpful to sort out the two and I'll tell you why. The first level I would call, I don't have a great name for this, but I'm in my own mind, I call this the primary uh, uh, reality-based pain that you're in. So that uh, let's say pain, for instance, uh, sort of the most straightforward example of this, chronic pain, physical pain, you've got abdominal pain, you've got headache pain, back pain, Whatever hip pain, whatever it is that really plagues you and it really dominates your mind sometimes and it really limits you. So you've got pain and it's chronic pain. So, what I mean then by the primary reality based level of pain, I mean you have real pain. And if you pay attention to it, it has certain texture, it has a certain nature, it has a certain waxing and waning course during a day. It has certain responsiveness to things you do and don't do. And so if you're really on it, if you're really mindful of it, paying attention to it, um, you have pain and you have natural emotional responses to that pain. Disappointment, you know, resentment, anger about that pain. And so (coughs) that's all of what I mean with every type of dead end. I think there is a sort of reality-based pain. Bill, who I was talking about it is reality-based pain to have a partner that is mentally ill and isn't functioning the way they did before that what they're capable of and where it's offloaded onto you and where things are really unhappy for you and you're just trying to keep paddling the boat you know and keep things going and managing your life what at whatever stage of life you're at and so i would say a lot of what i had described to you about bill what i would call primary reality-based pain in other words there's just no getting around it. Anyone in his situation would be feeling a lot of it. It's natural. He's not doing anything weird. He's not doing anything making it a lot worse. But then there's this other level. And I'd call that the add-on level, the level of a number of add-ons. So you have primary, let's go back to physical pain. You have chronic pain and it's painful and you notice it and it is disappointing, and it has a lot of emotional ramifications. But then, let's say, on top of that, you develop an addiction. That's an add-on. Now you're, you, you, got, you, you had some opiate drug for your pain, and you got hooked on the opiate drug, and now you actually have problem number two. I mean, and it's on top of problem number one, and if you ever got rid of problem number two, the addiction you're going to still be facing problem number one, but without having made much progress in it. (coughs) Because the add-on, whether it's addiction, and I'm going to give you several categories of add-ons to look for if you're in a certain dead end. If you're in an add-on, it essentially has the function of getting you away from the primary pain, which gets you away from the primary source of the pain. So you actually are removing yourself. With an addiction, you're anesthetizing yourself. You're like putting a blanket on yourself. You're like escaping for a while over and over again until actually the physiology of the addiction has now become in itself problem number two. Um, And it's a source of pain. It's a different kind of pain. It was a self-generated pain in that respect. And what other add-ons do I talk about? You know, the whole there's add-ons in the realm of your thinking so that if you notice like Bill did, this is really painful. This is really disappointing. This is a heartbreak. This is tiring. And all those things that you can, all you can say is, of course, of course, of course, of course. But then if he goes to the level of fuck her mother for doing this to her, or I'm such a shit the way I treated her and I caused her depression, or look the bad decision that we made and starts ruminating about the bad decision we made to have a child. We never should have done that. That's now what I would call an add-on. I mean, yes, it comes naturally, but actually it's not quite as close to the actual pain itself. It actually is getting away from it. If you judge yourself when you have pain, let's say you have physical pain. You're noticing physical pain. You're mindful of physical pain. You're making adjustments to your physical pain. You might be trying to find a way to compensate for it, to make it better, to live with it, whatever it is, and keep functioning. But if you start ruminating, about why you got physical pain and how unfair in the world it is that you got physical pain and your brother didn't. Or you start ruminating about how this is gonna end everything that's meaningful to you in life and make it so, you know, I had physical pain at one stage of my life before we had children. And, uh, you know, I was having hip pain, which turned out to be osteoarthritis. Uh, and it was became pretty serious, but it was bad enough. But then when I would lie around at night and think, oh my God, my kids are going to grow up. I'm not going to be able to play with them. You know, I'm not going to be able to to shoot baskets with them and run with them and and swim with them. And that actually was an add-on. I mean, that was an additional source of suffering that I imposed by my own thinking. Um, Because the reality was, whatever the reality was, the reality was that day I was in pain. The previous day I was in pain. The reality was the pain waxed and waned, depending on what I did. So, it, and so, actually, I was making it in my mind. I was sort of globalizing the pain. I was catastrophizing. I was overgeneralizing, overestimating the risk that it was going to destroy my life. And really, you know, that wasn't helpful. Um, hard not to do it sometimes. So, thinking, judgments, catastrophizing, lots of cognitive distortions are add ons uh, because you actually might be able to do something about them and move yourself back towards just seeing reality as it is today, here and now, and what, what might be done about it. So, that, so thinking can be an add-on. What else can be an add-on? You can start doing things with poor judgment and impulsivity, which then complicates your life. So if Bill, which he didn't, but he had thoughts about, because there was someone at work, started to have an affair as a runaway, as an escape, as a way to cope with his pain, his primary pain, um, that would be an add-on that would then inevitably complicate his life. And and that could lead to genuine hopelessness once that collapsed or fell apart or went whatever direction it went. I mean, not that it would have to happen that way in every case and not that having another relationship is necessarily the most terrible thing in the world, but it's just sort of like that might be poor judgment and it's done out of despair. It's done out of escaping And so escaping in almost any form can, if you keep escaping, become a real problem and it removes you from the primary pain, but it also removes you from finding solutions for the primary pain. It's a little bit like a metaphor I mentioned in the last podcast. It's think of it a little bit like wound healing, where one of the first things that happens when you get a wound on your skin is you develop a scab and scabs are incredibly valuable. They protect your healing wounded self while it heals. But, and you know, some of these escapes might be that if they're done temporarily, but if a scab sticks around longer than it should and it doesn't fall off, you actually are retarding the ability of your wound to heal. If the scabs are supposed to be there and then fall off. But if you start drinking or using drugs or running around or getting involved in something that's more or less an escape, and it, it takes you away from the primary source of pain, primary solutions of pain, you know, and you don't get back very much. You know, now you, now this is a dead end. I mean, being in Bill's situation and having an affair and drinking a lot every night more than he used to, that's a dead end. I mean, that means, it means because you actually are paving the road to something where there really isn't an obvious way to solve it i mean you are trying to use these behaviors as a way to solve your primary pain so really it's an important thing to understand this i think and i've thought this way about situations i've been in in my life and patients that i have that i work with just a family the other night i just sat with what i thought was going to be two people it turned out to be eight people and this all whole very concerned family came about someone in their family who was having a certain kind of difficulty and discussing it and we it took us an hour and a half while we were trying I was thinking like this. I was thinking, what's the primary pain in this family? What are they going through that's completely understandable? And what are they doing to complicate it? What are they doing to add on to the problem? Like different family members were flaring up into conflicts with each other. That's an add-on at that point. So, um, so I just I think yeah, I get the point across. Because once I differentiate these kind of things, and they're not so easy to differentiate. I mean, I, I knew Bill at the time. And, you know, so Bill is having all of these things that I completely empathize with him about, about the situation with his uh, wife and what he's going through. And he was doing some of these things that I couldn't as much empathize. I could understand, but I really felt like, wait a minute, Bill, this is going to make things worse. What you're thinking about, what you're going through, what you're doing with your, you know, with alcohol and making certain decisions that actually are taking you away from the problem, which is understandable, but it's, it's like a scab that isn't going away. So I was trying to do that with his family, and it was a complicated thing to do with eight interconnected people. Um, but it actually was helpful. We sort of talked about and let them talk about and cry about and express, because some of them hadn't, their feelings about their family member and, and the kind of pain that they were all in. And then they could share that with each other to some degree and hear each other for the first time in some cases. And then we could say, you know, this is primary pain. Do you think you guys are doing anything that makes it worse? What's always nice when you're talking like this and you're doing it from some notes is that you talk for a while without looking at your notes. Then you realize, oh, I already just went past several pages. All right, because I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I'm never going to get to where I want to get to I'll get somewhat I'll get somewhat there we started a little late and I'm going to go late so that it so that I have about an hour of talking um okay so step 1 if you understand this this way and you've got these different levels that are interpenetrating it's not always that easy to sort out it takes a little work to sort it out but the first step is to sort things out so the first step is to uh come to your senses the first set step is to grab hold of your mind. The first step is to establish conditions where you can think clearly, which you probably can't do next to your spouse uh, or while interacting or just when you were interacting or when she's in the next room even. It really is how can you establish conditions for yourself so that you can actually settle down, clear your mind, use some acceptance of what's going on, identify what's going on. You could do this alone. You can do this together with someone else. You can, if you, someone who likes to write, you could write things down. I, I tend to do that. I mean, and so that the idea is to let the contents of your mind settle so that you can actually see the difference between some of the level one, some of the primary pain you have, and give yourself validation for that and compassion for that, or be talking to someone else who helps do that And then what you're doing that is complicating matters, because primary pain itself, as painful as it can be, I do not think of as a dead end. I think there are multiple solutions to pain, multiple solutions to, you know, as the, what did they say? I grew up in a small town with people who never think psychologically, (laughs) who they would say little sayings, they'd be up in our kitchen, actually. But um, yeah, into every life, a little rain must fall. It's not a little for some people, but, there, but it's a good start uh, for a highly Swedish family um, to say something like that. And so um, I, first you kind of get to where you can settle. Now, in the world of DBT, um, which is not all I would do, the, I'm, I would do anything that helped me get in the conditions where I could think clearly and I could settle and I could just go through hell and, and still be there and then come through it and talk to somebody about it and then think, oh my God, well, I wonder what I should do about this. To get there in DBT are the mindfulness skills. The, there are six mindfulness skills that are essentially the path, the pathway to getting into wise mind. And wise mind basically from a certain perspective is just reality mind. It's seeing what's actually real as opposed to getting caught in hijacked by illusions, by judgments, uh, by clutter, by all kinds of things, you know, end runs around life. Sort of like, you know, just facing it, just settle down, just see what's going on, just name what's going on, be with what's going on. Even if you get from here to here, it's a better, I mean, you don't get all the way down. You're not going to sit and meditate under a tree for 40 years to get to this point. I mean, this is like, and you might not meditate at all. But the idea of mindfulness is that you observe what's going on, you describe what's going on, you try to participate in healthy things so that your mind can be totally immersed in something that's perfectly benign but a good thing to do whether it's music or activity or something or a conversation with somebody or a good book where you can just be in the zone as much as you can because that could that really helps you settle in the long run and where you become aware of what's a judgment and what's not a judgment and not to not to fault yourself for judgments but just to notice yeah I'm having the judgment that that we shouldn't have had a child. I'm having the judgment that my wife's mother made this happen. I'm having the judgment that this will never end and life is no longer gonna be worth living. I'm having the judgment that I'm really a jerk because I really get irritated with my wife, uh, even though she's suffering. And so all these judgments, if you can catch them and say, I'm having the judgment that, blah, blah, blah. Or even if you can make it one more step removed and say, I notice I'm having the judgment that you, then you sort of get a bead on your judgments and your cognitive distortions. And they, then they pack less power. Not that you get it totally away from them. They'll still fly across your mind. But if you can defrock them a little bit, I think it can help you. So this whole first step is that, and it's sorting out, um, what is happening that's primary here? What is happening that's inescapable pain? What is happening that I'm adding on to it or other people are adding on to it? And if so, how can I turn in a direction where I let go of the add-ons? Whether the add-ons be thinking processes, emotional processes like runaway emotions, actions that are not very well advised, uh, addictions, uh, things that are, I'm doing that make my body worse. Like I'm I'm really not taking care of my body. And it, it's sort of, be, it's becoming itself an add-on because now I usually take care of myself, but now I've gone months without doing anything to take care of myself. And I feel like shit. And that's an add-on. I actually could do something about that one. So it's sort of like sorting out the add-ons versus the primary pain. Validate yourself for the primary pain. Acknowledge that yes, you are in a bad situation. Yes, of course, it's depressing. Yes, of course, you're upset about it. Yes, of course, it's hard to manage every day. And you're doing stuff that is an end run around it. And let's get back to just facing it. It really is the essence of the treatment of PTSD, too, is that it's all about exposure to the primary pain, that it results from the original traumas. And so, all Every model of treatment about PTSD captures this same idea is that there are these things that we do that escape, things that we do that avoid, things that we do that ignore. And then there are things we can do that point towards the primary source of pain, point towards the things we're remembering but not wanting to think about. And it's painful. We have to get ourselves in a condition where we can do that. And then once we can do that, it actually changes a lot it might not change Bill's wife, but it might change Bill to, to, you know, have this. So if if this is step one, where do we go from there? And it's not like there's an easy, uh, that you know that there's step one and then you stop with step one. And there's a little bit of a problem with calling it step one and the others two, three, and four, because actually the sequence with which you do these things and the degree with which you do these things probably varies from person to person. So It's a little artificial to call up these steps, but these are natural ways to think of it. But don't don't get rigid about it. I mean, do something towards establishing conditions where you can put yourself in a place where you can think more clearly. Not all at once. Takes a while to grasp these things. Sometimes takes quite a while to grasp these things. But if you try to grasp them, all of a sudden one day you wake up in the morning and you say, oh God, I get it. I get it. I get what I'm doing. I get what I'm doing that makes this worse. I get what I'm running away from. All I have to do is face that this is real. This really happened. And it's sad. And it's painful. And it's irritating. And it's frustrating. But you know what? That's all it is. Now what? And then you're in a different place than you were before that, when you felt you had to run away from the primary pain. Now you're sort of Getting around your mind around the primary pain, you're moving towards it. But to do that, you have to get away from the add-ons, and then you have to be able to focus in again and again. Maybe I mean a good therapy can do this, counseling can do this, a good friendship can do this, a relationship with a pastor or a, or a rabbi can do this. I mean, a, a, another family member. I mean, w- or someone can do it themselves to some degree. So all of that. So what's the step after that? To me of the various ways to put this, the next step would be, okay, with a clearer mind, with a wiser mind, with a less cluttered mind, I would then try to focus in on what needs to be solved. And what can I solve? And it brings in the serenity prayer. You know, what can I change? Because you can't change at all. Bill could not change Claire, I guarantee you that. He did everything he knew how to do. And, and and surprise her with things, and nothing. I mean, she was caught in her brain of depression until it alleviated, which it did after quite some time, and in a way that really led them to, again, have a really good life. But it was five years of the, going through things like this before something sort of clicked for her. But so what is he doing dur- during that time? Um, you know, you're know, you figuring out, what can I solve here? What can I do? My recommendation in situations like that is you really, if you can get clear first about what's what and and just either enumerate to someone else or to yourself or write them down. Say, here's what needs to be solved. I need a better plan for taking care of my daughter. I need a better plan for checking on my wife, but not being overly obsessional about it, but also not being too neglectful about it. I need to find a balance where she feels like I'm checking in on things. I need, to, I need to do a little research about her illness because I'm the type, you might say, that wants to know about these things. And I can go on the Internet or I can talk to a doctor or I can go listen to a talk on YouTube or something. I want to get smarter about what she's going through so that if there's anything I can think of that would be different, I don't mean finding a new cure, but just assist her. Maybe I haven't been doing that because I've been busy running away from my pain. So now looking at, looking at the situation with my wife square in the face, is there anything I can do on a regular basis that actually moves towards a solution? And that doesn't necessarily mean a cure, but a solution to the agony of daily life. Something, one thing at a time, because it's not going to be a big fell swoop, that sort of thing. You know, say, oh, I'm going to take her on the vacation she always wanted to go to. But let me tell you, people who are depressed when they go on vacation often get more depressed because they're aware that they feel terrible while they're on vacation. And so it really is like, makes for the worst vacations of a, of a couple's life. Um, so I think that you try to solve what you can solve. Within the DBT world of skills, there's two sets of skills here for this. Well, one main one 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 skill within dbt and it's within an emotion regulation module of skills is called problem solving and i'm just i pull that out of that module and say cuz it's just such a clear evidence based comes from decades of work in cognitive behavioral therapy it's just a many step how do you solve a problem how you how do you lay out what the problem is how do you brainstorm all possible solutions without editing any of them You got like 25 solutions, most of which won't work, most of which can't be done, but actually that process generates a few solutions that maybe some can be tried. And then you zero in, circling out, you say you had 25 solutions, you end up crossing out 23 of them, but there's two that you think, you know what? I never did that, that actually might be helpful. And then you say, okay, I'm gonna select that solution and now I'm gonna try it and I'm gonna keep track of whether it helps. I'm gonna talk to my wife about whether it helps. I'm going to check in with myself whether it helps. So, you know, it's problem, basic, basic problem solving. The same set of things you would do if you have a leaky faucet in your house or a noise in your car that you don't understand and you want to solve it yourself. You, it's the same exact process. It's just with human functioning. So I think that the first, so the, that problem solving set of skills and the other major set of skills, because a lot of these things will be interpersonal. How can I talk differently to my wife? how can I actually deal differently with my daughter, who's now two and a half? How can I tell the relatives in a different way? That's more, you know, and they are the interpersonal skills in DBT, telling you how to talk to people, to ask for what you want or to convey information or to say no to people that you're trying to say no to, but in a way that doesn't alienate them. Um, And in a way that doesn't make you feel like shit. I mean, these are essentially what the skills are and how to maintain relationships. Because I'll tell you, one of the things that made Bill go under for a while was not only was he drinking more, and he was filled with uh, ruminations, and he wasn't sleeping very well, and he doesn't keep up his exercise routine or anything else that's his usual stuff. He was letting relationships fade because he was obsessed with what's going on at home. It's completely understandable. But it actually, if you stop and think about problem solving and relationships, it's exactly the wrong thing to do. You've got to be ready for the long haul unless you're planning to cut and run. I mean, you've got to keep those connections out there. So even if you're about to go to dinner with an old friend and your wife says, how can you leave me, honey? I'm, I'm going to be so insecure here. I'm feeling so depressed. I feel so bad. You know, are you coming back? Yeah, of course I'm coming back, honey. I just, I, I really need to keep up my friendships so that I can really like be present with you and have energy and stuff. So I'm really, really sorry And you know what, I'm going to call from dinner and check in with you and see if you're okay. You know, and so, okay, very important to have that kind of interpersonal maintenance, like maintenance of your body and maintenance of your sleep and maintenance of your nutrition and all these things that basically go to hell in situations like this and then just complicate everything. And it wears on you slowly but surely. So interpersonal skills is part of the solutions that you have. Problem solving is part of the solutions you have. Everything you know about just practically solving problems is part of the solutions. Not all of this contained within DBT. Then the next, so the first, so the step after getting clear about things, getting into wise mind, figuring out what you need to figure out, sorting out what you can do something about, is okay, let me solve what I can solve. And part of that is solving things outside yourself, like interpersonally, solving things situationally, But now the next step is trying to solve your emotions. So that's, you literally go from, can I solve this problem? Okay, I'll solve what I can, but what about the parts I can't solve? They make me feel terrible. Okay, can I solve something about my emotions? Can I actually take better care of my emotions? And that is where DBT is a really world-class place. Um, for recommendations because it's all based on the idea of emotion dysregulation was the basic idea of dbt is how do you treat people who keep getting dysregulated emotionally so in the emotion regulation module there's a whole thing about how to understand your emotions in a model what are the functions of your emotions what are the myths you might have about your emotions and these are like you know illusionary thoughts Um, what are ways that you're actually not taking care of yourself, your resiliency. What are you not doing to accumulate positive emotions which makes you more resilient? You know, and what could you do? And what could you do when you start to have really negative feelings and how can you check them out and solve them or do what you need to do to get through them so that they aren't dominating your mind, dominating your body? So there are a number of things to do, but the first thing is what can you solve out there What can you solve in your marriage as it stands right now? And now what can you solve in yourself to take care of your anger, to take care of your resentment, to take care of your irritability, all of which is understandable, to take care of your own disappointment, your own tendency to depression, your own anxiety and rumination? All of these things sort of need attention. And so if you can go there, you're preserving yourself, which is probably the best thing you could do for your wife at that point. What's the other thing? If you have taken care of what you can and try to solve what you can, and of course, by the way, important perspective is that it isn't like you've tried something and oops, that one can't be solved because tomorrow's another day. And you might find that something doesn't work now will work on the fourth try. I mean, so it isn't like you know that. But you basically have been working on trying to solve what you can and there's some things that are hard to solve. Then you're trying to solve your emotions, regulate your emotions, take care of your emotions, take care of your body and all these things. And so you do what you can with that. But then you still are stuck because there are still things that you can't change about your emotions and your body and your relationship and your wife's illness and whatever else is going on situationally in the larger world. So you, you really are still stuck with this irreducible core of things that just generate distress And 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 you can't change them. So this next step is really like a skillful ways to tolerate, skillful ways to look at reality and and say, you know what? I don't know if my wife's getting better. All I know is she's still depressed, and I can't seem to change this, and I can't seem to change the fact that it breaks my heart, and I can't seem to change the fact that it really makes me resentful about some things. I've tried and I can't change these things. Therefore, can I accept these things? Can I accept that my wife is still stuck like this for God knows what reason? And can I accept that I can't change my emotional response to it? It's so depriving. It's so upsetting. This is the core of my life. And so actually, I'm really upset and I can't seem to really change it. All right. So the next solution is not to solve it. The next solution is to accept it. And in DBT, it's called radical acceptance. And this is within the module of skills in DBT called distress tolerance skills, which actually at the beginning of DBT, 30 some years ago, Marshall and Han used to call it the reality acceptance distress tolerance module, because it's made up of two sets of skills. There are six skills, that, including centering around radical acceptance of various ways to accept the things you can't accept. And it's very helpful, but it requires going over and over. And it's really, it's deep. It's one of the deepest parts of the whole treatment. And then there's six skills for trying to get through a rough time without making things worse. And they're called crisis survival skills. And you need them again and again and again in this kind of situation. And they just include things like distracting yourself and doing something that's benign, but distracting, like get your mind off your wife. Get your mind off your misery. Get your mind on something else. You know, get hold of a TV show. Get hold of some music. Get hold of what, reading something, of a conversation with somebody, with going out for a walk or a run or getting some exercise. or Whatever it is, there's activities you can do. There's ways to calm yourself down and soothe yourself. There's ways to use imagery. There's ways to use prayer. There's ways to try to extract meaning out of the horror you're going through. And all of these things are ways, and there's many more things, to try to accept the things you can't change outside yourself or inside yourself, and then to accept them, and then to get through them and tolerate them, and keep giving them a chance to get better. Because a lot of what this is, is like getting yourself in a better condition, a better state of mind, a number of strategies, keeping your connections, taking care of your emotions and your body and yourself. Maintaining your connection with your wife, but not overdosing or underdosing um, with that. And at the same time, I sort of think of it metaphorically like standing at a wall that you haven't been able to get over, you haven't been able to get around, you haven't been able to get under or through, and there you are. And happiness is on the other side. And it's sort of like, and there's no other route there. So sometimes it requires using this whole set of steps and staying at the wall and watching for the crack to develop. Because in almost all cases, there will be a crack and you don't know what it's gonna look like. It could be the crack of maybe your wife's gonna get better. It could be the crack of realizing, well, I can't wait for that. I have to adjust to this in a way that I feel is humane and a way that preserves me and whatever that involves and and be responsible in, in some way so that it fits within my values. You know, but there are a lot of ways to skin a cat, and even if it's a, sca- a cat of, of primary pain uh, for the time being, and you try to dose that in with some things that get back to finding pleasure in your life, get back to having fun in your life, even though it doesn't now at the moment involve your wife, but actually your wife is going to benefit from the fact that you are doing that, as long as, you know, you're not doing it in a way that's unnecessarily uh, in her face uh, and she's upset about. So there are other things to talk about about this, but I've sort of shot my wad here, so to speak. I've sort of like said what I wanted to say, um, went through some things and, um, you know, and and really the, this whole project I'm in the middle of now, which is a little bit different. I'm still within this podcast series, and this is probably 60 or 60 something number podcast. And they're all entitled. If you haven't been to my podcast before, uh, they start all the way back to uh, September of 2017, and uh, with the hurricane in Puerto Rico, and with the hell people went through f- with that. And the podcast includes the hell people go through when when a suicide of a sister, and the hell that somebody went through when a two-year-old child died, of of her daughter, of her of her son, um, and the hell that people have gone through in trauma and PTSD and with borderline personality disorder. And then a lot of these podcasts are me just talking about those things from a perspective of principles that come from DBT and skills that come from DBT. But the current project within this larger project that I've just gotten onto now is I want to go through a variety of kinds of dead ends that people get into in their lives and see if I can speak to them in a way that is at all helpful, you know, or lead somebody in a direction where they find something helpful. So, this was the dead end of being married to somebody or being a partner of somebody or being loving with somebody who is suffering from a mental illness. But there's many such things. And and actually, the reason I chose this one for this week, just to reinforce any of you who have ideas about writing to me and tell me what you'd like to hear about, because there's so many of these things, is that you know a person wrote me and after the last podcast and said, I'd be interested in having you talk some about this thing about having a spouse with a mental illness. So, you know, there's, there is, uh, I won't enumerate the number of things, uh, probably not a good way to end Halloween talk is uh, to go through all the hells of life that people have. But, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to try to do that and see how do people survive? I've always been interested in those books where people went to Antarctica and their boat got, totally stuck in ice and they somehow survived they went over the mountains in colorado and some of them ate each other and some of them still survived and how do they live with that and 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 how do they go into a prison how do people survive a concentration camp and still carry on a life it has always just been oh my god i mean these things are baffling to me but i think there's lessons in all of these places so just i'll be happy to try to speak to ones that people bring up so please feel free to email me if you want at c. c the letter c. Dot robert. com or through my website you can send a, a, get an email to me okay so i'm while i'm talking to you this whole time in this podcast just so you know um actually there's one person listening And he's sitting opposite me, so to speak. He isn't sitting opposite me. He's at his house, wherever he is. And I'm seeing him. And and, uh, it's been very meaningful to me that you've been there uh, and that you're listening to this. And I hope that this was helpful to you and to anyone else who listens in. Um, But it also does help to actually see people, uh, even though I've actually gotten pretty good at just talking in the dark. Um, But (laughs) it's nice to talk to somebody who I can actually visualize. So thanks for being there. And I'm going to sign off. And uh, I don't live where people, where trick or treaters come, actually. I'm out in the woods. But uh, so I don't have to worry about that. But I think I'll go have some candy. Um, So everyone who's listening, take care and tune in. And you'll find out whatever's going to be the next form of dead ends I'll talk about, I'll be putting on my website and put out wherever I announce these podcasts. Okay. Take care. And Don. Bye-bye. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, take care.